Psalm 29, a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The voice the Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And all in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. And the Lord blesses his people with peace. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Ollie. It's a, uh, one of those psalms, isn't it? A magnificent psalm of God's, uh, God's goodness and God's power. And it's our privilege to have a look at that psalm today. Sometimes we have experiences in life that give us little insights into parts of scripture. And the longer I live my, my life, the more inclined I am from time to time to just reflect back on circumstances. I want to recount to you a circumstance that in retrospect has made more sense to me. Um, in October 1966, I was an eight, nearly nine-year-old boy living in Townsville in North Queensland. I remember standing on tippy toes beside the main street craning my neck amongst a crowd of people and I was holding a little Aussie flag in one hand, a little plastic flag with a little stick and a little Aussie flag, this hand, and a little American flag in the other hand. And I was there to see President Lyndon Baines Johnson drive by in his big shiny limousine. The crowds were cheering all the way with LBJ. And all I knew was that he must be a great man because there was so much fuss. There were lots of police on motorbikes and soldiers in uniform and I had to be dressed in school uniform and my parents kept telling me and my two brothers um, to be quiet and watch out for this big shiny car that would be coming past. And the man inside was the President of the United States. But I had to wait so long. We seemed to be there for hours. I'm sure it wasn't. But, you know, you're a kid and you just get fidgety and things get boring and you're looking around, where is this president? Finally, he did drive by and there was a little smile and a wave. He, I don't think he even saw me. And then all I saw was this limousine disappearing in the distance as he drove off and I never saw him again. And I thought, why did we come out here? See this great man 
You know, I'm only eight. I would have preferred to be home playing with my guinea pigs or my um, uh, toy boomerang that I'd made and throwing it around in the backyard. But I had to get dressed up in my school uniform and be out and watch this great man. To be fair, I was always going to be let down by LBJ on his fleeting visit. How could a mysterious visiting president from a far-off country compete with pet guinea pigs or with your favourite homemade boomerang in the mind of an eight-year-old boy? I didn't know this fellow. Now, around the same time, I had been going to a little church that our, our yard shared a common corner. And I could jump over the back fence into the corner of the Methodist church yard. So I, I trotted along to youth group and they gave me a little blue RSV Bible as part of the children's ministry there. I will never forget feeling like I'd been given treasure and coming home and reading this little Bible. And, I, and no one, I don't recall anyone saying, you have to read the Bible. I just wanted to read it. And I enjoyed reading about God and I wanted to know about God. I always believed that he exists, but I didn't know how to know him. And in retrospect, I can see that I was on a, a trajectory that would go on and would take about another 10 years till I was about 18 before I really did come to know God through Jesus Christ. But the beginning was being given a Bible and starting to read it and starting to have my eyes opened, even as an eight-year-old, to the magnificence and the wonder of a God who made the heavens and the earth. Now, I didn't mind losing time from my guinea pigs or playing with a boomerang in the backyard when I was reading the Bible. When I read it, I felt different. I felt better for it. Although it would take about another 10 years to put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together about God, God had begun a work in me. And when I look at those two incidents that happened around the same time in my life, one was, was like a human appearance, human splendour, human dignity, human power and authority, and it just seemed to ride off into the distance and did me no good. But the other was at work in me in ways that I could never have understood. And I want us, as we come to this psalm, to see what this psalm is saying. Psalm 29 is a nature psalm. It's about the Lord's superiority over the forces of nature and the power of idols and false gods. The psalms have been described as an anatomy of the soul. Each psalm has a unique capacity to focus on one aspect of our human makeup and to, to lay bare the foundations of our being before God so that we sense our need of God. And Psalm 29 asserts the greatness of God who has total control over all other powers. And I pray that by the end of the sermon today, each of us here would have a yearning desire to put our faith and our trust in such a God. How can we know this God? But before we do, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we come to you in utter dependence, humbly relying on you to fill our hearts with understanding so that we treasure your loving greatness. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If we look at Psalm 23, it has three movements, if you like. Verses 1 and 2, if you have your Bibles with you, it'll make more sense to you. Verses 1 and 2 focus on, if you like, all the heavenly beings calling upon these heavenly beings to confess God's supreme magnificence. So it says, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Ascribe to the Lord, worship the Lord in the splendour of holiness. So the, the key word in verses 1 and 2 is ascribe, attribute, offer to him the majesty and the worship and the authority that is rightfully his. That's, it's a call to acknowledge God's greatness. And then the next section, verses 3 through to 9, the key word is voice. And it's a description of God's power over nature. So the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The, the Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The voice of the Lord twists the yokes and strips the forest bare. So you see voice, 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 voice. It, it happens seven times. And it's almost like it's saying uh, a reference for one of the e each of the seven days of creation. That God is majestic over his creation. He is the creator who has authority over his creation. So we see the desire to ascribe to God glory and strength. And then a picture of God as Lord over all the forces of nature. The voice of supreme authority thunders over his creation with majestic power. Think of the words used here. He shakes, strikes, strips, twists and breaks things that are by nature resistant. Mountains, cedar and oak trees, wild oxen, deserts and forests. We can't break those things. We need bulldozers and we need time. All these things can kill us and he makes these things to tremble. He's saying these things tremble before him. He has authority over them. And then there's verses 10 and 11 at the end where it's God blessing people from his throne. Look at verses 10 and 11. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. So we've got a call upon heavenly beings to ascribe greatness to God, to acknowledge that he is king of kings, lord of lords, god of gods. There's no one like him. Then a description of his authority over nature where things tremble before him, get broken before him, and he displays his authority easily over them. And then a call upon us to worship this God who is enthroned 
over creation. That, if you like, is the psalm in a nutshell. Now, in the, in the biblical and ancient Near East, the cosmos, the universe, was regarded as a temple. Each culture tended to view the, the world as part of God's temple, and they would build little temples that would have their gods residing in their temples. And Israel's God resided in the tabernacle and then the temple, and that was the presence of God. And the the temple or the tabernacle was like a little microcosm, a little uh, shrunk-down miniature of the world. And I want us to consider what is being said here, that the Lord is enthroned in his temple. The Lord has authority over creation. What There's something significant happening here when it says this. And consider the words of God to Job. We know Job's suffering. And, you know, he lost all his ten children and he was smitten with boils from the crown of his head to the tip of his toes and on the soles of his feet. And, and it was something to do with, if you like, a contest between God and Satan. And Satan comes in amongst the sons of God. And uh, consider these words near the end of the book. It says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors on it and said, Thus far you shall come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. This is a picture of God exercising authority over creation as he makes it. And it's depicting it in temple terms, laying foundations, laying a cornerstone, making measurements. So it's, it's, God is saying that the world that he has made is where he is meant to dwell. But after human beings sinned against God, where was God going to dwell? Because his image bearers, human beings made in his image, had sinned. They defiled his name. They failed to fully reflect his majesty. So how was he going to dwell on the earth? Well, it was going to be through a little microcosm, the tabernacle and the temple where God's presence would be in creation. So Israel's temple incorporated elements of the heavens and the earth in its design. Palm trees were engraved on the walls. Lamb, goat and porpoise skins were used to cover the tabernacle. Images of pomegranates and fruit trees adorned the pillars out the front. The menorah, the seven-pronged candlestick, if you like, depicted the stars shining inside in, in, in the holy place, giving light. The angels and cherubim were woven in blue, purple and scarlet yarn on the curtain of the temple, separating that holy place from the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, saying that the earth, 
with the palm trees and everything in this section and the, and the stars shining is separate from heaven. It's separated by the curtain. That's why the cherubim were there. So it was a little microcosm of reality, of creation. Like, like the creation of the world, the temple was an impressive piece of work, the work of a master craftsman. But the focus in Psalm 29 is not on the craftsmanship, but on the God who dwells in this temple, the God who has authority over creation. So the occasion for Psalm 29 may well have been something like a huge thunderstorm rolling in from the Mediterranean Sea and snapping mighty cedars of Lebanon like matchsticks. David sees this as a picture of the unrivaled power of God over the surrounding nations and their gods. It's probably a little bit like Martin Luther when Fred gave his lecture on uh, uh, at the end of you know on the 31st of October for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, he described about the experience of Martin Luther in a thunderstorm, and it proved to be a turning point in his life. He was terrified before those forces of nature, the cracking thunder and the and the lightning, and it was a turning point back to God. And it seems like David is doing the same sort of thing. Maybe he'd witnessed a thunderstorm roll in and it had just forced him to look up and say, God, you're stronger than all these forces of nature. You're more powerful than all of that. And he pens this psalm describing God's authority over all things. We experience the same kind of thing, don't we, when we're confronted with the forces of nature. If you've ever been in a cyclone, you'll feel how powerless you are. If you've ever witnessed the forces of a flood or a tsunami, you realise how utterly powerless we are before such forces. But Psalm 29 is saying, God's not limited like we are. He can snap those trees He he can make Lebanon a whole forest in a region just skip like a calf. He can crack a mountain. He's more powerful than an earthquake. So David calls for all the angel hosts of heaven, literally the sons of God, to bow down before Israel's wonder-working God who sits enthroned above the flood and is frightened by nothing. The whole earth is his temple. The poets of the Bible delighted in taking the ideas of the Canaanites and the surrounding nations, stripping them of their essentials and depicting the supremacy of Israel's God over their gods. We know from some of the terms used in this psalm that David intended this psalm to picture the supremacy of Israel's God over the gods of the surrounding nations like Baal. You come across Baal regularly in the Old Testament. Baal was a a, a deity of the Canaanites and it was a besetting problem for Israel who often turned to the Baals in worship. Well, Baal was the storm god. He was often pictured with either like a thunderbolt or forked lightning. We know from images that have been dug up from archaeology that 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 was the picture, the the logo, if you like, for, for Baal. So this psalm is saying God is supreme over Baal, the storm god, because he sits enthroned above the flood. 
He can snap these things. He, he is just supreme. Look at some of the terms that are used here. Sons of God. Why, why that phrase? The, the uh, NIV translates it as heavenly beings, but it's literally sons of God in verse 1. Other versions uh, translate it, like the ESV translated as sons of God. What are these sons of God? Well, I don't have time to go into all the detail now, but I would just lay my cards on the table and I would say that it's referring to the heavenly council, God's authority over all the divine beings, not just over human kings on the earth. We see the term in um, Genesis 6 where the sons of God came down and intermarried uh, with the daughters of man. We come across it in Deuteronomy 32.8. We come across it uh, in the reading of Psalm 38 that I just brought to you, where it says, were you there when all the sons of God sang together? Now, that couldn't be kings at creation. There were no kings. And the morning stars sang together. It's got to be referring to something beyond just human power and authority. And he's, he's saying God sits enthroned as the Lord in his heavenly court over all the divine beings. You see it in Job 1 and 2, with that glimpse of Job with his suffering. And the sons of God assemble before the Lord and Satan comes among them. And they're not human kings that are gathering together and Satan comes among them. They're divine beings. And the Lord says, where have you come from? And Satan says, from roaming to and fro on the earth, meaning seeking to devour. So it's, it's saying God is Lord. He's Lord over this Baal, a chief Canaanite deity, the storm god. Look at verse 6. It talks about Syrion. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrion like a young wild ox. What is Syrion? Syrion refers to Mount Hermon. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 3 verse 9 tells us that, this is quote, Hermon is called Syrion by the Sidonians, while the Amorites call it Senea. That little, just almost like an aside in Deuteronomy 3, is telling us something that we can use here in this psalm. It's saying Israel's God is more powerful than the God of the Sidonians. He makes Syrian, their god, skip like a calf, quake before him, tremble before him. They jump up and flee in the presence of Israel's God. So what, what's this saying to us? It's saying God is king over all the Baal-like idols of this world. He is lord over all false religions, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam as well as over all false isms and ideologies alike, whether it's Marxism, communism, capitalism, humanism, materialism, consumerism, and all their attendant political structures and ideas that go with that, whether it's same-sex marriage, euthanasia, abortion, LGBTQI theory that's come in, all this gender theory, all types of political correctness, all of these are extensions of the various isms and ideologies that human beings hold to. And God is saying he is over all of that. He is supreme over all of that. 
we tend to worship science. But science is like God's law. It can expose things, it can explain things, but it can't really change our hearts. It can't really help us. Um, I'll just use a little example. Our daughter, Laura, is an exercise physiologist. And one of the, the... It's a bit like a physiotherapist. And one of the biggest problems she has is trying to get patients to actually do the exercises that will make them well. Science can diagnose the problem and tell people what to do, but can you get them to actually do their exercises that will help them? That's another story. And that deals with a human heart. That reveals something about our human nature. If we don't want to do something, we won't do it, even if it's to our own detriment. If we prefer to do something else, we will do it. Science can expose these things and reveal these things, but it can't fix a human heart. It can't change our fundamental nature. And yet our culture tends to worship science. Scientists are held up somewhere, uh, in, you know, we would even say the pantheon of the gods, um, up with the sporting gods in our culture. So where is Psalm 29 led us to? It's led us to ascribing greatness and majesty to Israel's God who is Lord of creation, dwells in unapproachable holiness. He's enthroned forever, separate from his fallen creatures. He's over us and he's Lord over all the other gods and people as well. And we're left to ponder, well, how can we draw near to such an awesome God who's enthroned in heaven and shakes the earth? The nearer I get to him and his power and majesty, the more I tremble in my boots. The more, the more I realise how small I am, the more I realise, oh, what can I do? How can I relate to such an awesome God? He, he can just make a cracking thunderstorm and he can, he can send an earthquake or a tidal wave and he, he's got the authority over creation and I can hardly even fix him a back fence. So uh, how do I draw near to such a being? Well, Psalm 29 doesn't actually give us the direct answer to this, but it points us to something. Because right at the end of the psalm, when it's talking about the Lord sits enthroned over the flood, the Lord is enthroned as king forever, so it's elevating God to the status of kingship and majestic authority over all things, and says, verse 11, "...the Lord gives strength to his people..." The Lord blesses his people with peace. So it must be possible to come to a place of having peace with this God. But how? When he's so awesome and so majestic and we're so puny and the nearer we draw to him in his holiness and our sinfulness, the more we quake in our boots and we realise the gap and we realise we can't bridge it and we realise that if God was to break out against us, he would consume us like that. His holiness would just, he's a consuming fire. He would just, would be just fried chips in no time. So how can you draw near to a God like that? Well, we search beyond this psalm. There's a pointer in this psalm to peace. And we know that the God of Israel had promised through his prophets that there would come a prince of peace. Isaiah talks about it. We just celebrated 
at, uh, at Christmas time, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You see it in Handel's Messiah, the, the phraseology that, that just comes out. And it points us to this God who is able to bring us peace. And in the New Testament, we discover that Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, fits the bill as this prince of peace. He's the only one that fits the bill. He is God of all gods. He's the source of all light. He's before all things, behind all things. He's enthroned above all things. He's the Lord of life who died on the cross for sinners and rose triumphant from the grave. He brings good out of evil and life out of death. He has all authority because he is the resurrection and the life. Who else can span death? He is building his church as a holy temple in the Lord and he's turning atheists into missionaries. He's subduing his enemies and making them his friends. He's not just spewing them out of his mouth, he's, he's recycling them. He's drawing them near through his son, changing them by the power of his spirit and putting them to work for him instead of against him. Only God can do this. Only God. He's preparing a place for his people and he will judge the world in truth and mercy. So why can we be so confident about this? Well, consider the evidence. This psalm has depicted God's power and greatness so memorably memorably over creation. Remember Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed. Anointed is Messiah in the Hebrew. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain, the temple in Jerusalem. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun or he will be angry and your way will lead you to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this psalm is is urging all human authority figures to wisen up here and recognise their rightful place. They are beneath the footstool of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods. And in several places in the New Testament, this psalm, Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry with you, is, is expressed in terms of its fulfilment through Jesus. Just think of Matthew 28, what we think of as the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me by the Father. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is claiming that the Father has given him all authority in heaven and earth. And Psalm 2 said, kiss my son, lest he be angry with you and you perish on the way. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Do you not know that I could ask my heavenly father and he would send me 12 legions or squadrons of angels to help me? 
I don't know any human authority who could do this. LBJ could never summon up 12 squadrons of angels to help defend the US or Australia. Donald Trump's not going to be able to do it. Kim Jong-il or Un or whatever he is in North Korea, he's not going to be able to do it either. The epistles, the New Testament epistles and revelation all display Jesus as, as Lord to the glory of God ultimately. Any number of places indicate that if we repent and believe the good news of Jesus, then this is what it means to kiss the Son lest he be angry and we perish in our sin and foolishness. Romans 1 tells us that God's wrath is against all forms of ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings, that all of us fall foul of God's holy perfection. Romans 3 demonstrates that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. John 3, Jesus suffered, died and rose again that we might not perish but have everlasting life. 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the pathway to peace with God. Romans 5 actually tells us we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the entire book of Revelation is like one living, vivid series of pictures, almost like a movie, uh, showing us Jesus as the all-conquering King of Kings, returning for his people and judging the world in total justice. The final chapters of Revelation depict Jesus in the very imagery of Psalm 29. I just want to read to you a few verses from Psalm 20. Uh, sorry, from Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the lake of fire that is the second death. Everyone whose name was not written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. This is depicting Jesus with all authority over heaven and earth. To enter into a relationship with this all-powerful Son... The Father calls on, on everyone on earth to repent of whatever in our life is the cause of his displeasure. And the chief cause of God's displeasure is the sinfulness in our hearts. It's not so much individual things that we do that are wrong, it's our disposition, our sinful nature, what is often described as original sin that dwells in our heart. Jesus said... Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart comes murders, thefts, adulteries, etc. Greed, envy, slander. The problem is our heart. And science can't fix our heart. It can explain all sorts of things about the world around us, but it can't really fix the human condition. 
But Jesus is saying, I can. I came as God of gods and yet a human being and I combined in myself sinless perfection as a human being and I have, I'm the mediator between God and man. If you want to draw near to God, you have to come through me because I'm the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you try and go any other way, you'll be consumed because you've got a sin problem. And Jesus lived that perfect life in our place, died on the cross to take the punishment for our sin and rose again that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's how we have peace with God. That's how we can draw near to a holy God through his son, Jesus Christ. So we need to repent. We have to acknowledge our human condition and then receive Jesus Christ in faith, knowing that he died in our place on the cross and rose again to set us free from sin and death. We have to entrust ourselves to him as our sovereign Lord and God and as our unfailing saviour and protector. So repent, receive Christ, As many as received him, he gave the authority, the right to become children of God, even to all who call upon his name. And then choose to live your life with him on his terms, as his follower, as a learner taking his yoke upon you, learning from him as he coaches you through life, as you stumble and fall and make mistakes, but he teaches you and he trains you. So with your very life and being, your past, present and future, entrust yourself to God. Invite him in. Invite him to take over the problems in your heart and manage them. He's up to it. All your aspirations, all your goals, all your dearest relationships, invite Jesus into that inner recess of your inner being and say, here I am, Lord. Take over me. Use me as you see fit. If you've done or will do these things, repent of your sin, receive Jesus Christ, choose to live with him, then take heart. Whatever your circumstances, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from God's love in Jesus Christ. Not height, nor depth, nor angels, or principalities, or powers, things past or things to come. Nothing in all creation can separate us from his love, which is in Jesus Christ, the go-between, the mediator. If your awesome saviour is for you, then not even Satan himself or death itself can separate us from the Father. He is the resurrection and the life. How do we have peace with God? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in 2018, go all the way, not with LBJ, he's long gone. He's not going to help us now. I don't think Donald Trump's going to help us. In 2018, go all the way with Jesus Christ. He will keep his word to you. He won't drive past you and disappear into the distance with a smile and a wave, never to be seen again. You can rely on him. He's up to the challenge. He'll not leave you or forsake you. Through sickness or death, through unemployment, divorce, good times, bad times, he's the same yesterday, today and forever. 
Behold your God. Worship him. That's what Psalm 29 is calling upon us to do. It's a nature psalm invoking the majestic authority of God saying, Behold your God. See your God. Rise out of your stupor, out of the fog, and see who is is King of kings and Lord of lords. Wake up and see the majestic God with whom we all must have to do and have to give an account. Show him you're grateful for sending his son while living your life for his glory with him in your heart, guiding you each step of the way. He'll bless you with peace. His wounds are a wake-up call. His purposes are wise and lovingly great. This is our God. He is exceedingly great. Let's pray. Lord, you are magnificently great. We have heard today something of your total power over creation, that your voice snaps trees and makes the mountains to quake. We can see that the Bible tells us that this is because of the utter purity of your character. It's an expression of your very being as exalted over all as the creator, the only wise God. There is no one in all creation who will be able to stand before your righteous gaze unless you extend your rod of mercy to us. No dark angel or demon, no false god or spirit and no human being can stand in your presence. We are utterly cast upon you for mercy and grace. Lord Jesus, you are our only hope. You are God's gift to the world. We're so sorry that we have not always valued you as the greatest treasure and gift of all. Forgive us for taking you for granted. Forgive us, Father, for for the times when we've just presumed upon your kindness as if we could venture into your presence on our own terms without realising that it's, it's only by your mercy in Christ that you can receive us. So, Father, we come to you through Jesus. We approach you in prayer in the name of Jesus. We call upon you in the name of Jesus to have mercy upon us and encourage us to live our life with you through Christ. Fill us with your spirit, that we would not have human ingenuity as our guide. We know that will fail us, that will lead us up the garden path at some point. But your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You will not disappoint us. You will not lead us astray. You will not leave us nor forsake us. So encourage us this day, Lord, to worship you as our majestic great God, to call upon your name through Jesus, to know that you will receive us for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.